today we are in uh, the book of Proverbs, which we've been in all fall. And actually from now until Thanksgiving, we're going to continue to be in the book of Proverbs, where we've been looking at how the book of Proverbs offers a kind of a way to the good life. Uh, specifically, it helps us discern this way to the good life through these 915 short little kind of pithy, wise sayings. And so, like I said, from now until Thanksgiving, what we're actually doing is we're taking um, a handful of each of these Proverbs, compiling them and bringing them together by theme, and then looking over, reading over, and kind of, you know, taking that theme to think about uh, for the week ahead. And so what we're going to be doing is we'll be looking at this uh, through uh, next week. Pastor Lorenzo is going to take us through Wisdom's Way with Work. Uh, the week after that, we'll be looking at Wisdom's Way with Wealth and with Our Money. And then we're actually going to spend two weeks on Wisdom's Way with Our Words, uh, where we're going to be really diving into how do we build a, a good life, a life of flourishing and abundance of fruitfulness and faithfulness uh, with the words that we use, how we talk with one another. But today, we're actually going to be looking at Wisdom's Way with wine and alcohol. Now, everyone at some level agrees we need wisdom when it comes to something like wine and alcohol, because uh, even in this room, if we were to pull everyone, uh, and, and even those that are probably in traffic right now trying to make it way through a triathlon, if we were to pull everyone, we have a wide range of experiences when it comes to, the, 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 to alcohol, to wine. If we were to sit down and pull everyone here, a wide range, not just among us, but even in us, a wide range of experiences. For some of us, alcohol has brought, a, a, it seems for some of us even, nothing more than pain and brokenness of separation and relationships, of addiction, either in ourselves or in others. For others of us, when we talk about alcohol, we were raised in a particular religious community and tradition where it wasn't just frowned upon, it was outright inherently evil and sinful. And then still others of us, our engagement with alcohol while seeing all that has largely been one of, of joy and celebration of community. And some of the best moments of our lives have been around a table with wine or a, or a drink. You see, there's, there's a wide range here. And so, okay, obviously we need to think wisely about how we engage with alcohol, but how do we do it? Griffith Edwards, he was a British psychiatrist who spent his whole life studying alcohol dependence. He actually coined the term. Uh, he actually wrote this, this kind of quote to set up our time together today. He said, alcohol is a pervasive fact of life, but an extraordinary fact at that. It is pleasurable and destructive. It is uh, anathematized, a fancy word for saying it's condemned and cursed, and it's adulated. It is praised and celebrated. And in all of this, it's deeply ambiguous. And I love that he says this, it's the genie in the bottle. That in this ambiguous thing that is alcohol, we have within its reach and range the, the high ends of a life of celebration and joy and community and also isolation and loss and destruction. It truly is this genie in a bottle. And it is a pervasive fact of life. A, a wise approach to it cannot be ignored with both wisdom and folly in its grasp. We need wisdom's way with the genie in the bottle. And so today, as we look back into the book of Proverbs, today first we're going to take a big gulp of how Proverbs talks about wine and alcohol, and then we're going to distill a practical framework for how to engage and think about it before finally cracking open some potential habits for wisdom. Um, I'm sorry, that's the end. That's the last bad, like, out, like jokes. So here's what we're going to do. Um, like I just said, so we're going to start, like I said, with, with um, really, you know, gulp, uh, taking a big drink of how the Bible talks, specifically Proverbs, talks about alcohol. 
from there going, okay, with that framework, or, or now from that, what is a framework for how do we actually wisely engage with this thing? And then from there, some habits. Because like we saw two weeks ago, the way to the good life of wisdom is not merely that of willpower or, or information, but creating habits and ways of being. That is the way to the good life. And so we're going to go through those three. But first, let's pray. Ask the Spirit to guide our time together today in the Scriptures, and then we'll jump right into things. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for this community. Thank you for your work, your Spirit's work in each and every single one of us. Uh, God, even those of us that are here today that... Maybe even right now, this whole thing of prayer is like the third or fourth time they've ever done it, um, that they're still considering who you are. That God, today as we look at alcohol, that we would use, that this would be a chance for us to think through not just our relationship to wine or beer or alcohol, um, God, but our relationship to you as the giver of good gifts and us, those that you've given a responsibility uh, to steward those things wisely. And God, the good news of Jesus who meets us and brings us the gift and deals with, God, our, our failed responsibility. God, well, we've dropped the ball. May we see Jesus today, and may you help us to figure out what it means to follow him in all of life, specifically today with alcohol. In your name we pray, amen. Well, if we look into the book of Proverbs, and we start to kind of just do a, a Bible word study for wine and strong drink and alcohol in the book of Proverbs, the first mention of Proverbs in chapter 3 tells us that, that wine is a gift from God. In chapter 3 of Proverbs, in verse 10 in particular, we have this layout where it begins to say, those who trust God with all that they are and all that they have, their life will be one of resulting blessing. And one of the ways it talks about that resulting blessing is not just your barns filled with plenty, which I don't, does anyone here have a barn? We live in LA. Like we don't even have like houses, uh, let alone barns. Uh, and then, but specifically your vats will be bursting with wine. And, and so there you go. What is the sign of someone whose life is overflowing with blessing, they've got a fridge full of food, apparently, and they've got vats bursting with wine. Wine. Whatever our relationship to wine is, Proverbs begins, the first mention of it, is it listed as one of these elements of, of God's blessing within someone's life. That wine and alcohol are gifts of God in his created world. This mirrors exactly what we find in Psalm 104, verse 15, where Psalm 104, you see behind me, um, says, bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, you are very great. And then for like 13 verses, it's like, thank you know, when we look at the mountains, when we look at the sea, like all of your creation, God, you're incredible that you've created this world that just captivates our souls. And then verse 14 says, you cause the grass to grow for livestock to eat and then plants for men to, to cultivate. So bread, right? Like any, anything that you have, fruits and vegetables, specifically bringing fruit, forth food from the earth, and then not just fruits and vegetables, but verse 15 says, and wine to gladden the heart of man. The psalmist is looking over all of creation and going, oh my goodness, look at all the awesome stuff that God has made, and he wills it down and goes, and even the process of fermentation of grapes and wheat and hops and distillation, all of these, it's part of a good world that God has made where humans can make really cool stuff out of the stuff that God's made. These are all part of God's good creation. It is a gift. And Proverbs regularly associates it not just with blessing and gift of God, but also with wisdom itself. We saw that in chapter 3, but again, uh, chapter 9, verses 2 and 5, where we see Lady Wisdom, the personification of God's wisdom, inviting you and me to a life with wisdom. And the way that it's poetically portrayed 
is that she has uh, slaughtered her beast. That is, she's got, you know, skirt steak on the grill. She has mixed her wine. You know, she's got the, the Zinfandel in the decanter. She's set her table, and now she's inviting all of humanity. Come, eat of the bread I've made. Drink of the wine I've mixed. Leave your simple ways and walk in the way of insight. The way of wisdom is personified as this meal with really good food and really good wine had with wisdom. And that is a way of personifying the way of life with wisdom. And now the goodness of wine, this continues just for a moment, even outside of the book of Proverbs. Wine was a central piece of God's people, Israel. Their feasts throughout the year to celebrate and remember God. Wine was a central part of those feasts. And even more than just being a gift from God, uh, wine was a, a gift to God. When you look at the sacrificial system of Israel, you know, they bring food and meat and all these things. One of the sacrifices was the drink offering where they would bring the equivalent of a bottle of wine for us today, right around there. And it was specifically one of the ways that you would say, God, thank you. You would bring a, a bottle of wine and give God a bottle of wine as a way of saying thank you. And this was called the drink offering. And it's specifically over and again described as a pleasing aroma to God. So God's like, yeah, dude, when you bring me the best of your wine, like, I, I celebrate that. And it says God likes the smell of wine. God likes wine. And even more than this, Jesus likes wine. As you move to the New Testament, Jesus' first miracle was what? Water into wine. He's at a wedding. They run out of wine. And he's like, you guys got some water? Like, let's, let's go to town. And they make wine. And Jesus doesn't make Welch's grape juice. He makes the best wine that anybody's ever had at the wedding. They're all like, who is this guy? Where did you get, where's the, where are the grapes that he got this from? Jesus makes this incredible wine. His ministry, Jesus' three years of ministry in and around Jerusalem was eating and drinking with those who were rejected and scorned by society. So much so that the company that he kept and the rowdiness of the meals that he was at, that the religious elite, illegitimately, but all the same, identified, called Jesus a, a glutton and a drunkard. So this shows Jesus likes wine. God likes wine. It's seen as a gift of God. And, and, and this is what Proverbs is setting for us. Now, here's the thing, though. Before, we all, like, run out the door and we go down to Three Weavers and Inglewood or uh, L.A. Aleworks in Hawthorne or BevMo around the corner or Old Fields over in Culver. Uh, one, because it's, you know, 1030 in the morning. But also... <laughs> If we were to stop here, we would only be looking at half of the story. Only half of the story. Because though wine and alcohol are regularly associated with God's blessing, with wisdom in life, just as often in the book of Proverbs, it's associated with foolishness and death. Proverbs 20 uh, summarizes this really well in just one verse. It says, wine is a mocker and strong drink. Most would argue that's, that's the, it's the word for beer. Strong drink is a brawler. And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Wine, is it, 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 it turns you into a, the person with wine becomes a mocker. The person with strong drink becomes a brawler. They're going to lead you that way. Alcohol, wine, strong drink lead you that way. The person who allows it to do that is not wise. It leads you astray from wisdom. This is the danger of alcohol that it sets forward. It will lead you astray. In a word, lead you astray. But, but how does this play out? Uh, over in uh, two longer poems that we have in the book of Proverbs is around alcohol. We actually have a really cool way that they play together. But the first is in Proverbs 23, verse 29 through 35. Uh, let's read this together. It says, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has bloodshot eyes, redness of eyes? 
those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine, the mixed wine, there would be a big bowl of mixed wine. It's those who are looking for drinking parties is it's what it's saying there. They're, they're looking for the, you know, maybe not the frat, but they're looking, for the, they're looking for the pub, they're looking for the bar. It says, do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Quickly, for those of you that have been with us, and we know all the allusions to Genesis 3 and the story of Adam and Eve in the garden with the serpent. Right here, we have that wine is almost portrayed as this little fruit, literally fruit, on the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And though sweet in the moment leads to this, the curse and the, the sting of the serpent. There's this little illusion that's being played out right there. It says, when we drink from it and the venom of it gets into us, our eyes will see strange things. Your heart will utter perverse things. You will see and do and say things that you normally never would have. Things that go counter to reality. Strange, forbidden things. You will be one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies down on top of a mast. Someone falling asleep, completely out of how vulnerable they are right now. They are teetering over destruction. And they've fallen asleep on the mast of a ship. You'll, they struck me, you will say, but I wasn't hurt. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. And then it just repeats. See, the life of the story is the one being, who has woe, who has sorrow, who has strife, who's got wounds, who's got bloodshot eyes? It begins with this, who is it? It's the, the drunkard, in a word. And then the poem doesn't end with them going anywhere, but just right back to the beginning of the poem again. See, all of this is set together that, that with the dangerous allure of, uh, of wine and alcohol, right at the center here, is that it does something to you. And it's not anything good. It creates, creates and causes you to be vulnerable. But, but the question is, is in 23 right here, it seems like, is it saying more than just that, like, that you know, drunkenness is a sin or drinking is a sin? In verse 31, it seems like almost looking at alcohol is a sin. Did you notice that? Where it says, do not even look at wine right when it's red in the cup. Now, to play around with this really quick here, we'll do a little bit of Bible, and then we'll keep moving, because this is, it's worth noticing, because this is kind of confusing, right? We're reading through, don't even look at wine. Like, how does that come together with wine being a blessing of God, and I'm not even supposed to look at it? The word that we're translating from the Hebrew into English as look at there, we could also translate that as gaze or to stare deeply at something. This is not a passing look. This is the idea of like a deep, long look at something, which then when we look at the word about them tarrying over wine in two verses beforehand, it's evident this isn't just like you like don't go down like the wine like aisle at the shopping, like, you know, when you're at the store. It seems like there's a long, a, a longing looking over this, a tearing over it. And then when we also read in context below this where it talks about the drunk person, you know, who's on the mask being, you know, put back and forth, that what's going on here is not just don't look at wine, but it's talking in a way about the alluring, drawing you in, but then intoxicating in the end effect of alcohol. It's talking about drunkenness. And this is where it's helpful is the, the Greek translation. I told you to do a little bit of Bible here. The Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, which was done about a generation before Jesus' time, uh, they actually were really helpful here because if you look at the Greek translation of this, it's literally almost word for word the same until verse 31 where it's like, do not look at wine. And it literally just translated as, do not be drunk with wine. <laughs> it helps us. It's like, what is it don't, when it's wine, when it sparkles, the, the, the Septuagint is what the Greek translation is called. It literally just says, don't be drunk with wine. 
It's like, oh, okay, that's what the poem meant. Thank you for clearing that up for us. It's actually, this would have been Paul, that Greek translation would have been Paul's Bible as well. And so that's where in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, where Paul says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. It's literally a word-for-word quote from Proverbs 31 right here, or 23, verse 31. So the whole point here is what we're talking about is not you not even going to a bar, you not even going down the aisle at the store, but we're talking about drunkenness. And specifically because drunkenness, going back to that being led astray from chapter 20, it leads us astray from wisdom as it makes us vulnerable. The whole point of drunkenness, why is it not wise? It makes us vulnerable to foolishness. Vulnerable to foolishness, both our own and others. It makes us vulnerable to embarrassment, to shame, to harm. It makes us vulnerable to either being or sexually mistreating someone else. And so Proverbs is saying, okay, if you, you're wanting to build a good life, you're wanting to build one, I'm telling you nothing good ever comes from this. Now, nuance, 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 and footnote, footnote, footnote here. Because the way that you can mishear me right now is what I'm saying is that people that are drunk are responsible for what other people do to them when they are drunk. Do you, do you hear that? that? That's not what's being said here. Throughout the Bible, we actually have condemned multiple times those who misuse and abuse people when they're in that place of vulnerability because of their drunkenness. That's not what we're saying here is, oh, if you get drunk, you're responsible for whatever happened to you. Those people are held responsible for what they do. What Proverbs is saying is, you, though, are responsible for what you do when drunk. And in a world where people are foolish and wicked, you, one of the ways that you can be wise to protect yourself as much as possible. At some level, there are some people who no matter what you try to do, they're going to abuse and misuse. There, there is some, Proverbs is just saying, I'm, I'm trying to help you. It's like a good parent trying to say, I'm, I'm looking out for you. Nothing good is ever gonna come from this. You are making yourself vulnerable to your own or other's foolishness. Now this actually continues though in, in verse, um, beginning in verse four of chapter 31 where this vision actually develops and and hits another point of why drunkenness is foolish. In chapter 31, beginning in verse 4, we have um, these words that are given to uh, this prince, Lemuel, by his queen mom. And she sits her son down, and she's giving him wisdom for how to be a wise king. In verse 4, she says, It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It's not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drinks, specifically lest they drink and forget what has been decreed. And pervert the rights of the afflicted. Notice, isn't that interesting here? That the the mom's main focus of why not drunkenness is you have a right to do justice and you are not going to do it when you're drunk. You will forget what others are owed. But then it changes in verse uh, 6. It's really interesting. It says, give strong drink to the one who is perishing. And wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. You rather... Not forgetting, but remembering the rights of those around you. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. So one, it's just so interesting here how drunkenness and the forgetting effects of that are linked to our ability to do justice and righteousness. To give to others what they are owed. What seems to be setting up here in in chapter 31 is where we were just talking a moment ago about the, fully, the folly of drunkenness is it makes you vulnerable to yourself and others. Over in chapter 31, it says the folly of drunkenness is it makes others vulnerable to you. Where you will no longer be able to be the responsible person that you are called to be. 
Someone who gives to all what they are owed as image bearers. And so for the king in particular, the danger is for those around you in your life, the the needy and those who are uh, poor, those who need justice, you as a king will be unable to give that. Alcohol will keep you from doing that. Drunkenness will keep you from doing that, King Lemuel. Now the thing is, is most of us aren't kings in the room, but most of us, none of us. None of us here in the room are king, but here's the thing. So many of us, we have seen in ourselves or God have mercy. We've had this from parents or from caretakers, people that we trusted and looked up to, who they, in their relationship to us, they owed us this protection. They opening their mouth for us, that sense of speaking up for us, of being there for us, present and protecting and guiding and caring for us, a parent who was meant to be there, and that was their calling, and because of drunkenness, they weren't. The wisdom of of Lemuel's mother here is there are people in your circle. There are people under your care. Those are people in your area that you are called to look for. And drunkenness will keep you from doing just that. Many of us have experienced this firsthand. Either us doing it to someone or being on the receiving end from a parent or a caretaker or a loved one. And Proverbs is saying the foolishness of drunkenness is it makes you vulnerable to your own folly, the folly of others. And here in 31, it will make people vulnerable to you in your own foolishness. It sets us before here. But what's so interesting is that in this passage, we also do get a, a hint at the nature of the misuse of alcohol. Like, why does wine make us drunk? In God's created world, why, can't, why isn't it just like Coca-Cola that at worst I get like cavities, right, and, and gas? Like, why, why, why the whole drunkenness is, is built into this? We get this hint here of the wise use of alcohol to the point of intoxication or drunkenness. It comes up right there in verse 6. Where he is not to drink to the point of forgetting, but in verse 6 it says that you should give strong drink to the one that's perishing, those who are in bitter distress. We're talking here in this language of almost like an anesthetic, a medicinal use of drunkenness. Those who are on their deathbed or somewhere on that range, that there is a wise use in in alcohol helping them just be able to, to move into that direction with a little less pain. Specifically to help them, as it says, let's, let them drink and forget their poverty. This isn't talking about, oh, people that are depressed, just give them alcohol. Like, that's, that's a recipe for alcoholism. Poverty is the, it's, it's hard to translate, but it's this Hebrew word about their lack, their loss, the, what they are losing, what they do not have, which would be, if they're on their deathbed, any more life. Let them forget the fact that their, their life is coming immediately to an end. Let them be able to be present and not have to be focusing on their, their pain. So there's a wise use, actually, of drunkenness. You didn't think you were going to hear this today. But it's specifically this anesthetic, almost medicinal use for those who are perishing. And here we have that when it comes to drunkenness, the loss of sobriety, there is a medicinal but not recreational purpose for drunkenness in in the biblical landscape. And right here, we're talking about more than alcohol now, aren't we? There's a whole host of things that we can bring into this conversation. That there seems to be, in God's wisdom, knowing that this is a broken world in which perishing and death happens... These things that God has worked with in creation that are able to be a guide and a help, something there for those at the very end. We actually see this happen when Jesus is dying on the cross where they offer him a sponge of, of wine. But the whole point is, there's, so there seems to be a range where at some point we move from a wise, not drunken use of alcohol to the drunkenness. And Proverbs would say that, that range over here, that has actually a wise use. It's for the perishing. It's not for the living. 
It's for those that are on their deathbeds. It's not those that are in the middle of their lives. It's for those that no longer have a realm of control of what they're called to give themselves to and be responsible and accountable for. It's for those who are literally on their deathbed. It's a little grace and gift of God for those who are there. Now, why, though, is this? Why? Right? So you have vulnerable to other, like, okay, so let's say if I'm vulnerable to myself, like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'm going to, you know, just get drunk and whatever happens, like, that's, that's on me, I guess, right? Or, you know, being vulnerable to others, so if anybody does, like, I, I take that on myself, or like, yeah, maybe being vulnerable to other people, but I, I'm, you know, I'm a pretty chill drunk, like, why, why do I need to worry about that? Two weeks ago, we talked about this, the chief virtue of wisdom, does anyone remember what it was? It's self-control. The chief virtue of wisdom, of a good, flourishing, abundant life, is self-control. And so the danger, the foolishness, the folly of drunkenness, of the loss, of the inhibition of that self-control is exactly what's at focus here. Your ability to live and speak and act and think wisely in the moment, or as Paul would say in Ephesians 5, to be filled with the Spirit, who's one of his, the fruits of the Spirit, is self-control. This is, you, this is really what the focus is here of why drunkenness. It's not just that, like, God hates people having fun, where he's just, like, you know, watching from heaven, and he's like, oh, I see what you guys are doing. You're enjoying yourselves. That's my least favorite thing. <laughs> what God's saying is the good life, those of us who are seeking to follow the wisdom of Proverbs, the good life is found in a life of self-control of giving ourselves over to the life that God has called us to, and the danger and the folly of drunkenness is that it inhibits us in the moment to moment. And so some of you, well, it's only moment to moment. All the same. And all it takes is one moment. With, and as so many of us know, like not even with alcohol conversation in the room, all it takes is one moment to totally up, up, up completely turn over the entire life that we've been building. And for those in the room that have, that have had addiction or alcoholism in their family or within themselves, they can tell you that this is exactly the dynamic that plays out. Self-control, the ability to say yes and no, it goes out the window. And so here's the summarize, is what we have in Proverbs is this, this big range where on one end we see that wine is this gift from God that can be wisely stewarded and used or it can be foolishly misused and abused. And when that happens, it will lead to destruction, pain for ourselves and for those around us. And here, just a, I mean, the whole thing is we're talking about wine and alcohol today. This is true with any of God's gifts. This is true with anything. That God has given a good world with good gifts, and we can take those and wisely steward them. Or in our selfishness and our self-focusedness, we can misuse and abuse and foolishly corrupt those gifts. And in the end, it will only, it will only lead to destruction and pain. And this is, this is where we get then in the, the, the category now of talking about God's judgment. Happy Sunday. <laughs> talking about God's judgment is that throughout the scriptures, God's judgment regularly comes specifically because of our, our misstewardship of what God has called us to steward well as human beings. Our misuse and abuse of the very gifts that God has given us, we misuse them. We selfishly abuse them. And God's judgment then comes when he honors that decision. Heartbreaking as it may be to him, when we have chosen a trajectory, a way of using God's gifts, and he hands us over and says, okay, have it your way. Heartbreaking as it may be to him, he gives us over to the things that we want. And ultimately, it leads to nothing but our own destruction. God's judgment is far less Zeus lightning bolts and God just allowing us to have what we want. 
This is why it's so interesting to be talking about wine. The, the prophets outside of the book of Proverbs, but Israel's prophets would regularly call God's judgment. When God does this to someone, they would call it a, a cup of wine. This giant big cup of wine bubbling that, that everybody looks at and, and, and wants and we crave it, and we paw after it. All the while, God's saying, this is nothing but destruction. This is nothing but your end. This is nothing but pain. And yet we want it, we crave after it. And so finally, we get it by the hands. God gives it over, and we pound it, and we stagger off to our own destruction. This happens on an individual level throughout the prophets. It happens on a corporate level. Nations do this. Nations paw after, and God finally goes, okay, have it your way. And them staggering off looks like some you know, military battle or something like that where they fail and, and fall apart. But the whole point is that when we talk through wine, the, the book, <laughs> Scripture has this incredible framework of how it develops it. It sees it as a gift that can be used or misused, and we misuse it. And even what happens when we misuse it, they talk about it like it's a, a, a cup of wine. But all of this then brings us to Jesus. Because on the night of... Uh, his betrayal, his night before his arrest, and ultimately before his death on the cross, Jesus, too, talked about three different cups of wine. Jesus talked about three cups of wine. The first cup that he talked about leading up to his cross, Jesus talked about, was the cup that the prophets talked about. This cup of, of God's judgment, of the death and destruction that gets brought about by our foolish misuse and abuse of God's gifts, not just alcohol, but all of our gifts, the life that we have, our abuse and misuse of it, personified as this cup Jesus said, part of what is happening when I'm going to the cross, it is me drinking that, I'm taking that cup from you. And I am drinking down the consequences and the pain and the fear and the guilt and the shame of what your decisions have brought you. On the cross, Jesus is drinking that down to the dregs. He's taking it on him. But this wasn't the only cup that Jesus talked about. Jesus also talked about this second cup. Where earlier that night, before Jesus' cross and his death, he gathered with his disciples for the Passover meal. And as they make their way through the Passover meal, Jesus begins to detail its fulfilled meaning in what is about to happen in the hours to come, where he is going to not just drink that horrible cup, but he also says he lifts up this cup of wine, and he gives it to his disciples, and he says, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus holds this cup, and just like the cup he was just talking about, he goes, there too is this other cup that I'm giving you, this cup of new covenant, new promise of new life, of hope and forgiveness, a gift of God. Jesus said, through the cross, not only am I taking your vile cup of destruction, I'm giving you, through my bloodshed, this cup of new life and forgiveness of sins. That the cross is this almost exchange of Jesus going, you don't, you don't want that drink, and him giving you his. But even more than that, there's a third cup that Jesus talked about, one that he actually was anticipating, this cup that Jesus hasn't drank yet. He talked about this future cup of wine that he would have when he would drink anew in the, the kingdom of his Father, the kingdom of God. Jesus understood the cross, not just, again, as the taking of one cup and the giving of the other, but that through that, that there was a larger transition and movement that was happening within this world, that this world would be remade that he would celebrate the renewal and the resurrection of this world one day with his people. A world resurrected with its brokenness left behind. A world without death, without perishing, and with it no longer the need for anesthetic, without the use for the misuse or abuse of wine or any of God's gifts. Jesus said, there is a world coming like that. And wine is still going to be there. And I cannot wait for the day when I gather with my people and we share together 
a glass of wine. Now, all of these three cups would be a nice idea if Jesus stayed dead. You know, him talking about, I'm going to take the vial cup for you, and, and I'm going to give you mine, and one day the world's going to be better. And then he just, like, died a few hours later, and that was the end of the story. But with the good news, the, the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus from death, we have this evident moment right here 2,000 years ago, and this weekend in Jerusalem, where not only has Jesus been raised from the dead, not only can we have hope for the resurrection of ourselves, not only do we have hope for the resurrection of this world in this future cup, but we have this affirmation that that, that movement, that transition really did happen. That Jesus truly has taken from us all of the vile, the poison, the destruction, the death from our misuse of this world and our lives. And he has given us his life and his forgiveness and his goodness. And so followers of Jesus, for those of us that are here today, our lives revolve around those three cups. Acknowledging that the cup of judgment of my misuse for God's gifts. That Jesus took that cup for me on his cross and he gave me his new covenant cup of, of forgiveness and life. And I now live, we now live in anticipation with Jesus of that final cup in the renewed, resurrected world to come. So you can actually talk about the gospel, about three cups of wine. So the whole framework here is this is what we're invited into. Is to see that wine, like any of God's gifts, is a, is a gift that we can steward or misuse, but its misuse leads to destruction and death. And something must be done if we are going to make it out of this life alive. And the one hope that we have is the resurrection and Jesus, this exchange of what he's promised to us. Now the question then stands for those of us who are following Jesus today, we live on the other side of that new creation. Wine still can be, as we await the resurrected world, foolishly handled. And so to get practical, how are we to see wine as Jesus' people right here and right now? So the first you'll see behind me, based off what we saw in Proverbs a moment ago, is we can identify that there is a foolish yes with alcohol. The process of where we forget that alcohol is a gift from God to be stewarded. And what that most readily looks like is drunkenness. Where rather than living our lives being controlled by the spirit of living into the spirit of leaning into self-control... Through drunkenness, we idolize, and by that I mean we give ourselves up from one God to another. And we make alcohol in drunkenness our God for that time. And it's an awful God. This is where Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. For the Christian today, we can identify there is a range of foolishness with alcohol. Now, again, based off Proverbs, so too is there a foolish no when it comes to our alcohol. Some of you didn't think, maybe, maybe you did think that this was going to come here, but maybe not. The root here is the same problem. We forget that alcohol is a gift of God. And so we look at alcohol and we demonize it. We see it being inherently evil or inherently sinful. And in so doing, with it being part of God's creation, we identify God as creating something that's inherently evil, something that's sinful in and of itself. This is what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5, where he talks about a specific strain of false teaching that's going around and saying that certain gifts of God, that those things are inherently wrong and sinful. So here's the thing. Proverbs tells us wine and alcohol is a gift from God, so we can't foolishly just say outright no. But we also can't say foolishly yes, because it has to be stewarded well. Within that range, then, we've got this spectrum of wisdom. Now, this framework here, as we go into our foolish... Um, no, or, or wise no, is this, this is literally, you can do this with alcohol, you can do this with anything in all of creation. 
where you have a range between what the Bible says and there seems to be some complexity there or just something that the Bible doesn't explicitly talk about. You can figure out what is the foolish yes and the foolish no to this thing and then what is the range of what wisdom looks like with it. And we're just doing it with wine today. So here's what we can say. We have a wise no that can be represented within the way of wisdom when it comes to wine and alcohol. This is where we would refrain from drinking. While acknowledging that it still is a gift from God and God is a good creator, that we can still choose to refrain from partaking. And the reasons, there are multiple. It can be addiction within ourselves. We are recovering from something. We are recovering from our own bodies now needing, and we just said we can't go back down that pathway. Because of foolish misuse, in our body, we, we just, we have to say no. Or even in our family, I have seen what it's done to my parents, and for me, I, I don't even want to tempt that for myself. But this also can happen with people like the Rechabites or the Nazarites in the Old Testament, who chose to forego something good out of personal conscience and dedication to their ministry, their work, their lives with God. But no, neither the Rechabites nor the Nazarites understood them to be better than the rest of Israel, but that was their particular calling. So there is a wise no where we refrain, still with thanksgiving. But then on the other side, you have the second option, which would be a wise yes, where we receive it with thanksgiving. We identify it being a good thing. We receive it as a gift from God. And again, to be stewarded with thanksgiving and what that looks like is moderation and intentionality. Now, the unifying posture of the two, as you'll see there, is that they both come with thanksgiving to God. They both see wine and alcohol as a gift. And both sides of foolishness forget that it's a gift of God. When we foolishly move to idolizing, we forget that it's God's gift given to us to steward. And we take him out of the equation and we partake as we would. On the other side of the foolish no is where we take God out of the equation and we see it simply being something that not that God has given, but something to be outrightly sin, seen as sinful. And this is the key to wisdom's way with wine or with any of God's gifts is to remember that it's a gift of God to live with a posture of humility and fear of the Lord as we walk and live through our lives. It's about stewardship. Last week for our birthday uh, service, Pastor Lorenzo talked about what it means for us to be responsible stewards. And we tend to always talk about money and time, and absolutely so, but this extends to all of our lives. Alcohol is a gift of God to be stewarded wisely, and we will be held to account for how we misuse or abuse it. Now, this spectrum here was seen throughout church history. It was seen within the early church. Of the church being a community of wisdom, of thanksgiving, with some refraining and some receiving. But all of us unified with our thanksgiving, our unity in Jesus and our thanksgiving to God for it. But that still means that it requires work. You can go read Romans 14 and 15 this week, where in a letter, Paul literally has to detail and help the church figure out how they're going to live alongside each other with some refraining and some receiving. And Paul calls for those who receive not to cause refrainers to stumble or be tempted. And he simultaneously calls for those who are refraining not to judge those who are receiving. He says, both of you guys, nobody here is better. Both of you guys are figuring how to wisely steward and live faithfully to King Jesus. And so you guys need to figure out how to do that hand in hand. So refrainers, I, I understand that's your guys' calling. You guys don't get the judge card here. You guys are no better. You're figuring out how to follow Jesus. And for those of you receiving, you guys are no better. You don't get to tempt and pull anybody along for the ride with you. You need to honor their calling and their conviction in their lives. So here's the thing. Collective church, this is the vision of what we're encouraging and celebrating and calling our people to. This is the focus is us being a community of wisdom where we are encouraging one another in either our refraining or our receiving, all with thanksgiving to God together. 
And so this plays out in, in different ways where you'll see this. So like, for instance, in communion, in a little bit, when we come to the table, in our little Lunchable COVID-friendly packs, we have juice right now. Before COVID, we had, we had juice as well. And this is, this is purely because, you know, the option would be either having juice, only wine, or juice and wine. For us, knowing that we're a community of refrainers and we want to honor that, we want to have juice available, and we just don't have the volunteers to be able to pull off juice and wine and having both available. And so if somebody, somebody here is like, I want to be the wine person, maybe that's not the best way to identify, but I want to be able to, like, we more than welcome. I mean, we got to figure out how to do the, like, you know, um, Lunchables pack for COVID times. But the whole point being, we're thinking through our service and going, okay, how do we best suit and be a community where refrainers and receivers are able to gather in Thanksgiving? Or like our volunteer party last week where we had tacos and then we also had, we had wine and beer and LaCroix and water. We had all of different beverages available and gathered in this building was a community of refrainers and receivers. But the unifying thing was not that we were all drinking together or being, you know, not drinking together. We were all gathered in Thanksgiving together. We were all gathered as the people of Jesus. We were honoring one another in the midst of that. The whole point is we want to be a community where we're honoring and holding one another to wisdom within that conviction. So what that means is that we're, as those of us that receive, we're being really wise and asking to be held to the fact that we don't go into the idolatry territory. And also for those that are refraining is, I want to continue to be a person who receives all of life as a gift from God. I don't want to create a dichotomy or dualism of some things being evil when, when that's not how God has created them. So this is the practical framework. And like I said, you can do this with, with anything. Like many of us, like we should just do like wisdom's way with social media. And you can go, there's a foolish no, there's a foolish yes, there's a refraining, there's a res-. You can do this with anything of thinking through what this looks like. What does that look like? This is it for alcohol. Now, here we go. Let's crack open as we begin to land the plane. Some potential habits to live wisely, whether refraining or receiving alcohol. Because like I said, two weeks ago, wisdom's way does not come through you simply looking at the framework and going, okay, I got it. Or through willpower of you at the bar being like, do I have that extra drink now or not? Like what? It's habits. It's us creating these rhythms. So the first habit that I want to potentially invite you into is to find ways to make a habit out of thanksgiving. Make a habit out of thanksgiving, whether you receive or you refrain. Because like we just saw, it is thanksgiving and gratitude which keeps us walking in wisdom's way. For those of you that receive, that you do drink on a semi, whatever, whatever that looks like, I would encourage you to make a habit out of thanksgiving when you drink. As a reminder that alcohol right now, the beer, the drink, the cocktail, the glass of wine sitting before me is a gift from God for celebrating his goodness, that this is a good creation for me to steward wisely. I had a friend who whenever we would get together and, and have a drink, he would just really quickly raise it up and he would just exclaim, for the king and his kingdom. And then, you know, we would just go about the conversation. You know, he'd do like this little toast, this cheers. And, and, and this doesn't always have to be something where, you know, you're, you know, for king and kingdom and everybody in the restaurant's like, who is this like guy that got teleported from like, you know, medieval times? Um, but this can be simply like at the end of a, lo- like a, a long work day where you're sitting down you're going to have a drink with dinner. Man, thank God for today. Looking around with your roommates or your family members. Man, thank God for you guys right here before me. I'm, you know, let's drink to this. You know, let's drink to the day that we just had or the weekend ahead. And, and the whole point is when we bring that gratitude into our drinking, right, not only do we regain its purpose of it being not just any beverage, but one that's been given to steward and faithfully utilize for Thanksgiving, we also create, when, before we even start drinking, a stopgap from foolishness. Because we remind ourselves right here and right now, this is a gift from God to be stewarded, right? It's, it's when we forget that, that that's when we get in the, the, the territory of, of being foolish. 
Now, the same would be for those of you here that refrain, that for you, your decision, your life is one that I have chosen. Wassing is a gift. I have chosen not to drink. That I would encourage you to practice this same sort of gratitude in your life. And even for those of us that receive, to find this in more areas than just with our alcohol. One way that I would just encourage you is the forgotten habit of praying before a meal, of saying grace. There's incredible sociological studies of why us praying for our meals has gone away. And most link it to the fact that we no longer harvest our own food and cook most of our own meals. Is we don't understand the miracle that goes into us getting food. We go to the grocery store and it's just like, meal right here, right? Or we drive through, literally in our car, we drive through and get food. No understanding of the process of not just the animals and the food, whatever goes into our, we are completely disconnected. And so the miracle of that is completely gone from us. And so we no longer have a posture of Thanksgiving with the food that we eat. It's really, really interesting. But the whole point is, what would it look like for us to bring praying grace and, and praying, thanking God for the meal back before we have it? As a moment of the table, the food that we have right now, thanking God for it, bringing gratitude into our lives. And you could do this beyond just what you eat. You can do this with after a hike or, or going for a ride or having a good night with friends or just being captivated by God's beauty, creating habits of like, thank you, God, for this gift of giving and creating a posture of thanksgiving. Second habit, just to encourage, is finding one for both those who refrain and receive, creating habits and rhythms of both feasting and fasting. Uh, feasting being times not just of eating, but intentional, celebratory eating. And fasting, intentional times of refraining from eating or drinking or both. And creating these habits, we're not doing this because food or drink is bad, but it's a time to forego those good things and set our attention on the greater things of God's presence and prayer and contemplating and considering, asking God for guidance in some area. And so for those of you that receive, finding a rhythm of enjoying alcohol and finding a rhythm of times of refraining from that. Some of you, I would just recommend coming out of the teaching today, is maybe taking a season of refraining for the purpose of fasting and prayerfully revisiting your relationship to alcohol. But for those of you that, that still refrain, I, I don't drink, that, that you can still lean into this fasting and feasting for you to encourage, you know, well, uh, yeah, for those of you that refrain, I would encourage you to really lean into uh, the, the, the fasting or the feasting period. That for those of you that refrain, you can become very prone, like I said, to finding that duality of, of saying anything that's, that I, because of my propensity to uh, seeing that, myth, that sinful stuff can happen when we overly pursue our pleasures, that I want to say no and try to live like purely within this hyper-minimalist kind of like, you know, vision because I don't want to go into foolishness, is for you to still find a posture and a rhythm of, of feasting, of having really good meals and celebrating and enjoying and praising God for what he's been doing. But I was going to say, at the same time, we also need um, fasting as well, and that's, that's before everybody. So last habit, and then we're going to close, is uh, don't drink alone, but also don't not drink alone. <laughs> now, what I mean by this is not simply like that it's, it's wrong for you to have, you know, a beer or a glass of wine by yourself after the kids go to bed or something like that. But that both our receiving and our refraining should happen within our, the shared communal and even submitting to one another life of, of a church community. That is the place where the foolishness can really get going. When we overly isolate and individualize ourselves within our relationship to alcohol either within our drunkenness and hidden patterns of that or on the other side where we become this kind of pharisaical judge of everybody else. We're not sharing in the process and we see ourselves as being better than. 
Both of those are a direction of foolishness. And the invitation is, what would it look like for me to live in a community where I'm sharing and submitting to those around me of my relationship to alcohol and, and any of God's gifts that I'm prone to misuse? Of saying, this is where I'm at, and having a, a context with no shame, but having a context of, okay, so what do you feel like the Spirit is inviting you into, and how can we help? The context for this at our church is within our discipleship groups. As you talk about application of these passages next week, this would be a place to share that. What is your relationship to alcohol? What is your story? And because of that, what do you feel like is wisdom for you? And then to ask about one another, how can we help hold you to that? How can we help encourage you in that? This is how it all happens. Now, all of this today can be summarized in what the Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the church in Corinth in chapter 10. You'll see behind me. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, whether you receive or refrain, we could say, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or the Greeks or to the church of God with you, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. I'm not here to seek my own advantage, but that of others so that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Whether you receive or refrain, this passage gives two motivating drivers for the way that we live in wisdom's way. Loving God with all that we are and serving and loving our neighbor as ourselves. When we love God, we do all that we are and whether we receive or we refrain for his glory. And when we love our neighbor as ourselves, we seek to give no offense to anyone. We don't seek our own advantage. We're not looking out to, to either you know, running off into our drunkenness and causing others to be tempted and stumble, but we're also not causing the offense of being judgy for the fact that we've chosen to refrain. As we love God and our neighbor together, our goal is not freedom or even simply our sobriety. Our goal is imitating Jesus. And wisdom flows from a love of Jesus and following after him, as Paul says, learning with one another to imitate each other as we're imitating Jesus together. And we can only do this when we as a community have found greater joy in Jesus than drunkenness or sobriety can, drink, can bring. As Psalm 4, 7 says, we end. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abound. God in Jesus is the source of our joy. He is the source of our joy that unlike anything else in this world, that we have found in him a joy that is unshakable, that he has taken our cup of judgment, that shame, that brokenness, that fear, that loss, that guilt, that Jesus claims to take that. And he not only took it, but it's gone. The cup has been emptied on the cross. And now he has given us his unending cup of his forgiveness, of his grace, of his life. That has happened. And now we live carrying around this unending cup of forgiveness and life as we move towards new creation, awaiting the day when we will drink with Jesus again. And as we go through our lives, man, we're just like, we got that you know, magic cup of Jesus' grace and life. And that provides something that no wine, no thing can ever give us. And so that's the place that we live. That's the calling that we have. And it is out of that joy that we now love God with all that we are and we love our neighbors as ourselves. And that radically transforms not just our relationship to alcohol, but everything that we have. Let's pray.